morning again. Um, we are going to be talking about communion today, which is, if you've been part of our church, which is why the elements are here uh, instead of in the back where they usually are. Um, but there are certain things that are kind of true across cultures, across history and humanity. And one of those things uh, that's kind of very true across times and places and peoples and languages is the significance of a shared meal. And so just yesterday I was part of a cookout uh, that was celebrating the life of a family member of one of my neighbors. And so I was helping with that. And I was just kind of sitting there after the food was kind of done being eaten and everyone was just kind of hanging out. Uh, and there was music playing really loud and people dancing and stuff. And so I was just kind of sitting there just in the beautiful weather that we had yesterday and just observing what was going on. And I couldn't help but think about what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, certainly there's many times when a communal meal, maybe you've experienced this around, everybody has that you know, that thing about Thanksgiving, but there's times when communal meals are the place where all the family dysfunction comes out, right? Uh, that's true as well, um, and that's unfortunate. But my question then is, why do we keep coming back to it? Why, even in a person, I've met plenty of people who just don't have meals with their family anymore, but there's still a longing in them to have a shared meal with people that they love. We even have things like Friendsgiving, right, at that time of year. Uh, so as friends and families, why do we long for these moments? I, I want to just propose to you that the reason is that we need the meal for all of who we are. And so I'm going to just read you a quote from uh, a book that I would highly recommend to you called A Holy Meal. Uh, it's re really kind of a, a game changer for me as far as uh, my thoughts on communion. Uh, I read it a few years ago, and I, it's kind of one of those books I keep on my desk as a reference uh, but here's what it says in this book. It's written by a guy named Gordon T. Smith. He says this, We cannot live without eating. But even more remarkable, eating is a spiritual practice. We are reminded by the testimony of Scripture and the spiritual heritage of the church that eating and drinking are not merely responses to physical hunger. While acts of eating and drinking do meet our physical needs, in them something else also happens that satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. Now, in the church, and in particular, if you've been a part of our church for more than like two weeks, uh, you'll notice that we participate in a moment each week where we're enacting a meal together. Uh, and that's what these are up here for today for. So this meal goes by different names and different streams of Christianity. Uh, the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Eucharist. We don't typically use that last name in this church, uh, but that is historically one of the names for this meal. Now, today I'm going to use the Lord's Supper and the Communion and the meal interchangeably. So just hang with me. It means all the same thing, although they emphasize different aspects of it. Uh, but generally speaking, all these things, the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Eucharist, they all refer to this same moment in a Christian worship gathering where we eat bread and wine, or if you're still working through a response to prohibition, grape juice, okay? Uh, like us. So listen, this is, this is my heritage that I come from, but that's the reality of why we have grape juice. Now, back to the cookout yesterday, okay? As I sat there, I was just struck with the thought that there is a particular sense of God's provision and God's beauty in a moment like that if you'll take notice of it. If you'll stop yourself when you're at a gathering like that where people are enjoying one another's company, they're having a meal together, there's something, I would even argue, a little holy about that. There's something that's just so beautiful about a meal together that words really have a hard time capturing, and this is why God gives us a meal with which to remember and experience his grace towards us. 
Now, this is a really long quote, but I think this is a really good one to start off this conversation this morning. Listen to this. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or they're well on the way to becoming one. In an ideal world, the dinner table is far more than a functional space where human beings mechanistically refuel by themselves. Uh, if you want to read a book on the, the kind of other side of this, uh, pick up a book called Bowling Alone, and it will talk to you about this epidemic of people literally eating by themselves. There's places in our world that have restaurants for one. And there's issues that come with that. We're not made for that. The dinner table is a place where community is created and sustained. The dinner table is a place where hospitality is extended and conversation experienced. It is also a place where communal dysfunction or breakdown is seen and felt. Meals carry values. They tell stories about the people who have prepared them, the people who partake of them, and even about the people who are excluded from them. So this morning, what I want to do is not to get into the weeds of what kind of bread should it be and what kind of, should it be juice or wine and all that stuff. I actually think those conversations are fascinating. Uh, some of the most theologically informing conversations you can have. Get into a debate about leavened bread or unleavened bread, and you're going to have to develop your thinking about philosophy and theology and what it means. But that's not the conversation we're going to have today. We're going to focus just on the big picture. And I also just want to put my cards on the table, just note for you, that I'm coming from the assumption, and this is obvious since you're at this church and I'm the pastor and this is what we do, that this meal should be practiced every time the church gathers for this kind of worship together. I think the burden of proof is on you if you think that it should be less than that. When people ask me, why do you celebrate communion every week? I would ask the question, well, why not? Uh, and so for this morning, we're going to focus on the text that we use each week which this is just something really cute. One of our kids, uh, their parents, came, their mom came and told me that because we have communion with our kids, she has memorized the, the text from 1 Corinthians that we say each week and kind of says it along with me. Now that's a win in my book, right? One of our kids has got a little piece of scripture memorized just from the, you might say, liturgy that we do each week. That's amazing. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to take an overview approach, and I'm just going to talk through and focus on a few ideas. Now, before we get to those ideas, you need to know a little bit about the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth had some cultural ideas, in particular, about a meal, and that's the reason why Paul is writing to the Christians there in the letter we call 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be maybe a blue one around you somewhere in one of the seats. If you don't own a Bible, there's some uh, paperback ones on the black table in the lobby. Love for you to take that home. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, I'm not going to read a big chunk of it, so don't freak out right now. Just get there, and you'll be able to follow along. Uh, now, according to one commentator that I read this week, in the city of Corinth, quote, a meal was an occasion for gaining or showing social status. Now, that's still true in our day and age and in many places, right? Go to a nice restaurant. Why? Because the food's good. Yeah, maybe, but also because you want to go to a nice restaurant. There, there's, a, there's something to that. He says, it was in regards a microcosm of the aspirations and the aims of the culture as a whole. A dinner party would have been one of the primary places where one could observe intense social stratification. So putting people in stratus, stratas, if you will, of social status. A meal was a place where this happened. 
But what we see in the meal that Jesus gives to us, this meal, this table was designed to demonstrate something radically different, radically different. It's intended to create, to remember, and to enact an alternate, an alternate gospel community, something different. That this meal is an act of kind of the, the same thing that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a, another way to be human, another way to live in community. This is an upside-down, gospel-centered community, a different social order. The Lord's Supper is the place where gospel community is enacted, it's seen, it's experienced. Now, I'll be frank with you. Sometimes when I think back on our services, I think to myself, man, I should have spent a little more time on the Lord's Supper this week. And so that, that's something that is a constant just awareness that we have to be uh, looking at. Now, listen, I was shaped deeply in my Christian walk by conferences and camps and concerts, those kind of, we might call them in the evangelical world, a, a spiritual mountaintop experience, right? A spiritual hike. Those are cool things. And I like them, and I'm going to send my kids to those things. They're great. I, so I'm in no way speaking about those things. They are good and right things, but they are not the table. They are not the table. The communion meal at your local church is the way that Jesus has ordained that we experience this particular sense of the beauty of Christian community. Am I saying you're not saved if you don't do that? No. But what I am saying is you're missing something. That can't be replaced except for this moment in a local church. Nothing can replace it. Now, if you remember from last week's teaching in Acts, we talked about unity. And we heard a quote from uh, our favorite Alliance theologian, A.W. Tozer. If you didn't know he was part of the Alliance, now you do. Uh, but he had a quote about pianos being tuned to the same fork. Similarly, uh, up here, I have a tuner for my guitar. Uh, I wish I had one for my voice, but we have one for my guitar. <laughs> and I can tune it to the exact pitch that we need so that everything plays together. If we had multiple instruments, we'd all tune together. And so he had this quote about those pianos being tuned to the same fork. Well, listen, I'm not saying the Lord's Supper is the tuning fork of unity. That's not what I'm saying. The empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is that tuning fork. But the Lord's Supper might just be something like the mallet we use to strike the tuning fork. It's not the thing itself, but it's, a way that God has ordained us to experience the thing itself. So in this text, Paul is asking Christians in Corinth, he, he's asking them to shift their focus away from the theological nuance of it, although that's important, but he's asking them to shift their focus on the communal sort of sociological implications of the gospel and the Lord's Supper. Now, if it, you know the text if, I read, if you're here every week and I read it to you, but I want you to go back and read all of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians uh, because it really gives you the, the, uh, the context for Paul's words. And so there's kind of three places we can, we can trace uh, Paul's words uh, in this text. He talks about kind of what the community of Jesus looks like in terms of its beauty with the Lord's Supper at the center. Uh, we're going to see some of the challenges of the, the dysfunctions of the community when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And then at the end, we'll see some grace, right? Praise God for that. We've got to end with grace. Now, the nature of the Lord's Supper, it's one of the most heatedly debated topics in the history of the church, okay? So there's a sense in which I'm a little nervous because I could be kind of stepping in it here, right? If I say it the wrong way or the wrong thing, we have some pretty 
uh, pr- pretty passionate views about the Lord's Supper in the history of the church. So much so that, honestly, all of the great splits of the church have come either because of or around issues related to the Lord's Supper. The great schism was over the Lord's Supper, uh, the church of the East and the West splitting before there was Protestantism. It was over the Lord's Supper and, and what it meant. And, and Calvin and Luther, the two reformers, had different views about it, and they, they fought each other over it. Not, not physically, uh, but they fought each other in letters over it. Um, and so there's entire seminary courses. There's books dedicated to this debate. I could, I could recommend you a bunch of books uh, that are really good, but I just want to give you two ideas on the nature of the Lord's Supper that we would see maybe as incomplete. Not that Christians who think this way are not saved or are not good Christians. They are, but we would think of them maybe as incomplete. Then I want to just talk to you about a third way to think about it. So this is the, this is the, the, the kind of two that I grew up. The, the first one is the one I kind of grew up in in church, okay? So the first is that to see the Lord's Supper as simply a memorial and nothing else. Now, there's some particular theology, and if you didn't know, uh, if you ever go into a church that has the big um, communion table and it says, this do in remembrance of me on the table, that's there because, yeah, that's the verse that Jesus talks about, but it's also there because theologically they're saying we only do this in remembrance. Nothing else is happening at this table except remembering. So it's a memorial only. Now, in this view, Jesus is understood to be subjectively present in the mind and spirit of each believer. Kind of, you're bringing Jesus to mind. So then, communion ends up being about your ability to focus on, to think through, to remember the death of Jesus. And I've been in those services, right? Now, we're going to be quiet, and we're going to think about the death of Jesus, right? And that's a good thing to do. The problem, though, that, the problem that can happen is that the experience of the grace of Jesus as experienced in communion is dependent on your ability in that moment to be focused and to recall all that Jesus has done for you. So what happens if you're maybe having some gospel amnesia, as we all do, and we forget about the good news of the gospel in that moment, and, and, or maybe we're just in a bad mood and we don't want to remember that day, right? That happens. I would argue that in that moment, when we're not inclined, when we're not remembering what Jesus has done, that we don't experience the grace, or the, we don't get the experience of grace for ourselves if we simply can't remember or recall what's true about the death and the resurrection of Jesus in that moment, if the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial. Now, I'm not saying it's not a memorial. It, Jesus said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. But it's not a funeral for Jesus. That's not what communion is. Secondly, so that, that puts the kind of meaning of communion subjectively at the in the mind of each believer. But the second view, this would be more in the world of kind of Roman Catholic theology. Christ is, uh, the, the Lord's Supper is seen really as primarily a ritual, okay? So it's objectively about the bread and the cup because the presence of Jesus is in the bread and the cup. Also fascinating history to understand how that, how transubstantiation, the, the body and blood of Jesus becoming the bread and the cracker, how that theology happened, It's got to do with Crusades and Aristotle and all kinds of interesting stuff. But in this view, communion is mostly about kind of a a mechanical and even mystic process by which the bread and wine are transformed into something that you have to take as your religious duty. And so here's the problem with this view is that it's pretty impersonal. It really doesn't matter about you. It matters about the bread and the cup. So the bread and the cup work regardless of you. And that, that's really not what we see biblically. And so unlike the first view, 
where again, the emphasis really lies heavily on the person, the second view really relies heavily on the object, the bread and the cup, okay? Which is why in those traditions, they have very specific things they can do with the leftover bread and the leftover uh, wine. Uh, and so th those two views are kind of inadequate. Is it a memorial? Yes. Is it a ritual? Well, yes, kind of, but it's something more than that. So here's a different way to think about it. Um, li listen to this text from 1 Corinthians, actually, chapter 10. If you want to peek up in your Bible, chapter 10, verse 16. This is what it says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, this word is so important, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the idea of participation with Christ is the key here. I can't even express to you how much as your pastor, I want for you this idea to click in your heart, in your mind. This idea of participation with Christ is, an, is a game changer for you. Grasping the reality of participation with Christ will set you free from a lot of the religious junk that gets attached to things like this meal and even things like baptism. When we understand this participation reality, we see that the objective reality of Christ's work is subjectively accessed by the work of the empowering Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is really spiritually present. He's not physically present, but he's not there in, in like a mechanical sense. It's not the bread and the juice. The Christian's subjective experience is important but listen, it's not instrumental. Your experience of communion is important in taking the meal, but it's not what makes the meal have meaning. So, short way to say that, this is not all on you. In the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're communing with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian, in the language of the Westminster Catechism, it says this, that we feed upon his body and blood to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Now, if you're from a church background like me, that makes you feel real uncomfortable, right? But Jesus said in John 6, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh. And you can try to pass that off if you want to, but it's uncomfortable because it's mysterious and it's hard for us to get our minds around. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. What, what he's doing in this text in 1 Corinthians is asking the followers of Jesus again to, to move beyond just your intellect and theologizing and to consider, though, the function of the supper in the life of the church. That's what I want to focus on. Yes, all that other stuff is really important, but really what matters is how the gospel affects us and how the Lord's Supper functions in the life of our church. So what should the Lord's Supper communion do in the believer's experience? I'll tell you, when I am gone from here and I go on vacation or whatever, the thing I miss the most is not my own sermons, is the Lord's <laughs> Supper together, okay? What are kind of the horizontal realities of this meal? And so this passage is going to, give us an upside down, an inverted picture of how grace is supposed to function within the Christian community. Verse 17. Now understand, these are strong words of discipline from Paul. We read this text every week, and, and I do once in a while, but we don't always read the discipline part of it before we get to the part right before the meal. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. When you come together, so let me just say, this is an assumption on Paul's part that they're coming regularly. 
That's a whole other thing, but it's in there. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So the, the better that the church is supposed to display is the common sort of, that the church is supposed to not display, I should say, is the common divisions of society that we still have in Corinth had. Social status, race, ethnicity, class, wealth, gender, all those things that divide us in the world. Paul is saying the better that he's talking about is when the church community displays a way that overcomes all those. But the Corinthians are divided. Here, in this text, it's really a lot about class. Paul sees this as being inevitable, but still inexcusable. Look at verse 18. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I love how Paul is like, hey, listen, there's divisions among you, but don't worry, God can use that too so I can see who's genuine. And then he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The implication is they think they're eating the Lord's Supper, but they're not because of what's happening. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. He's setting up a juxtaposition here. Christians are intended to share in this common meal. The broken body, the spilled blood of Jesus blows apart any divisions that would be present elsewhere in this city's culture. There, there is an odd unity that happens in the church. And so, similarly to our culture, whereas Corinth would have normally divided up along the lines of rich, poor, free, slave, and all the other ones, the church is to be a place where things get flipped upside down. Slave and free, rich and poor, are worshiping together at the same table because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The church is also the place, though, where people approach the good gifts of God, like food and wine, with God-glorifying enjoyment. And that's that issue here too. But in this church, some of the rich Corinthians are overindulging. They're overindulging. They're doing it on top of that. Not only are they being gluttonous about it, but they're doing it at the expense of other believers who aren't getting enough to eat or drink. So this is, we have a potluck and some of us go first and take all the food and the rest of everybody doesn't get anything to eat. And because you're poor, you're not even going to get anything to eat that week. Gross. When Christians eat common bread and drink from a common cup or common little cups, it's a visual representation. When we come to the common table, it is for you, Christian, a visual representation and an enactment of the common divisions and disunities of the world that you live in being demolished in this place and in that moment. So we tend to alienate people as the other because they're not like us, right? That's just the norm for the way it is in the world. We marginalize people who are different than we are. And so rather than being concerned about their interests, we put ourselves at the center and we ask everyone else to revolve around us. But not me, though, right? I mean, not... Not me. I would never do that. No, we do that. That's what you're being discipled into. Why? Mainly because that's how people can get money out of you. If you think the world is all about you and buying what you need to be happy, then somebody can make a profit. And the church comes along and says, now we've got this meal where everybody's the same. 
And the beauty of the Lord's Supper is that there is common bread, there is this common cup, and it's a visual representation of the fact that the common divisions, the, com- the things that are most often disunities in the world are overcome and destroyed in Jesus. That's what we're celebrating. And so Corinth was a dysfunctional, the church at Corinth was a dysfunctional community because the city, the, the, the culture of Corinth was a dysfunctional community. And this is evident in their gatherings here. Uh, in, in his commentary, Craig Blomberg says this and, and explains this brokenness. He says, once again, Paul refers to divisions. But here, he's not thinking of the rival parties that possibly separate various congregations, but of the gulf between the rich and the poor within a given house church. So he's talking about one particular church. There's wealthy people, there's poor people. The minority, so that there's fewer people who are wealthy, but the minority of the well-to-do believers, including the major financial supporters and owners of the homes in which the believers met, would have had the leisure time and resources to arrive earlier and bring larger quantities and finer food than the rest of the congregation. Following the practice of hosting festive gatherings in ancient Corinth, they would have quickly filled the small private living room. Latecomers, the majority who probably had to finish work before coming on Saturday or on Sunday evening, would be seated separately in the adjacent atrium or courtyard. Those that could not afford to bring a full meal or a very good one did not have the opportunity to share with the rest in the way that Christian unity demands. Yikes, right? That's not a good picture of a church. And so Paul isn't that interested in the actual elements or even how it's distributed. Do you come up to the front? Do you pass it out on plates? He's he's concerned about a social justice issue here. That's what this is. This is an issue of justice. There is a social stratification that's happening and it's continuing to happen inside the church when it shouldn't be. And so the irony here, the thing that makes it really kind of gross and like a mirror for us to hold up to our own hearts, right, is that the very thing that should have been the beautiful expression of unity had been become the place where disunity is expressed the most at the meal. Rather than participating in this self-giving love of Jesus, they're hoarding food for themselves. He says, when you come together, that's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. They're not waiting for each other. It's no longer the Lord's Supper. They've made it their own thing. And you can't make it your own thing because you're not God. This This is profane what they're doing. This is what we might say sacrilegious, right? Those with means are gorging themselves and getting drunk in the dining room while the people that are poor in the church are in the atrium starving and having nothing to eat. Gross. This is a picture of communal breakdown. And Paul's response is kind of, it's a little comical, but it's, it's what you kind of would expect. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. You think this is good? No. He's saying that this cannot be the picture of the church. Now, there's an ancient writer named Lucian or Lucian who describes what's happening in Corinth. And listen to this. There's some funny stuff in here. You eat oysters fattened from the lake while I suck a mussel through a hole in the shell. You get mushrooms while I get hog funguses. Golden with fat, a turtle dove gorges you with its bloated flesh, but a magpie that has died in his cages is set before me. This is the cry of the poor 
in Corinth. You're getting filet and I'm getting leftover ramen noodles. Right? That's what he's kind of saying. This is about as far from participation with Christ as you can get. If this picture of injustice repulses you, it should. No one, and I want you to listen to this, no one in the Christian community gets leftovers. Nobody in the Christian community should get leftovers. But the reality is, though, that only the gospel of Jesus can actually overcome all these barriers in a community that is broken like Corinth is here. And in case you're wondering, our communities are broken this way. They're filled with people like you and like me who are tempted by the flesh, the devil in the world, to believe lies and to have meals and to live lives in the way that the church is here, which is why this is for us. But now here's the question. And, and I, love the, I, I love this question and the implication. If the, if the world's ways are being perpetuated at the meal, something we have to look out for, right? And it could be not this sin, but it could be another sin. If, if the world's broken ways are showing up in the Lord's Supper, what should we do? Should we abandon it and say, well, we can't do that anymore. It's too special. We don't want to ruin it. No, right? Paul doesn't do that. They're doing something profane, repulsive, but he doesn't tell them, now stop taking the meal. He never tells them that, as bad as they are participating in it. He, he invites them to dig deeper into the reality of grace that's offered in this meal, in the body and the blood of Jesus. There is really a deep gospel grace in the moment of this meal, which is for us the reason we take it every week. That's why. And I would ask, why in the world wouldn't we? Now, if we start to think of it in a way that's not what it should be and all that, then we need to think about it. But that doesn't mean we stop taking it. There is grace for us. So th there's kind of a, a, a few different aspects of grace. There's a grace that looks back to Jesus work on our behalf, looks back in history. Here's the familiar words we read every week. We're going to read in a little while. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So notice first thing, it's not something he made up, it's something he received. It's not within him, it's not within you, it's something we've received and what we then also deliver that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper is a sign. It's a seal of the redemptive work of Jesus on behalf of our broken community. Now, the temptation for us then is to go religious and go, oh, well, I better do it every time it's offered. Or if I miss church, and, I'm, and that's not what it is either. It's not religion, it's relationship. And yet in the relationship, Jesus has given us this act by which we remember the meal is also rooted in the history of what's happened to God's people throughout the history of Israel. Don't lose sight of that. Jesus was Jewish. In the Lord's Supper, what we're seeing is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. So the Passover meal had very specific symbolic references, things like four cups, which would refer to Exodus chapter 6, where God makes four promises about delivering Israel. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, is presiding over this meal. He, he's the one doing it the right way, presiding over it. He's not saying get rid of it all. He's presiding over it, but he's revolutionizing it. 
So, so a typical Jewish understanding of the Passover would have reminded them of the sacrificial system, right? Immediately, they're, they're thinking about blood and, and sacrifice. But Jesus interrupts this and he says, this is my body. What, what's he saying essentially? What he said in John 6, I am the bread of life. This is about me now. He's the fulfillment of everything that was symbolized in the Passover meal. Passover was the shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. So because Jesus knows us, and remember, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. That's one of my favorite verses. I don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with my weaknesses. One of the main ones is forgetfulness. And we forget the gospel. We forget what Jesus has done. And so he sympathizes with us in our weakness and he gives us this meal as a consistent reminder of his grace. That every time you gather, you remember. And so a reminder that his body and his blood given for you and for me removes every barrier, removes sin and God's judgment from us. But it also removes every barrier from one another. Socioeconomic, class, gender, age, race, whatever you want. Jesus has torn those divisions down. Literally in the temple there are walls. And Jesus has torn those divisions down. And each week when we eat this symbolic meal together, and I want you to hear this, we are standing in defiance to the way of the world. This meal is, is defiant in the face of a world that says, polarize yourself and be divided. We say, no, Christ's blood has unified us, and this is what we believe. But there's also a future grace. We look forward to Jesus' return on our behalf. And so he says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, this is a shadow of the future when Christ will return and make all things right, make all things new. Participating in the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. You are saying Jesus is Lord. For them, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and he's coming back. It's a proclamation that Jesus is what sustains us. And one of my favorite songs that usually gets sung around Christmas time, Let All Mortal Flesh Be Silent. Maybe some of you know it. There's a line in there that makes me a little uncomfortable, but I love it anyway, that Jesus is our heavenly food. Right? It makes me a little, ooh, uh, I don't know. But it's true. How? I'm not sure. Now to wrap up, let me just touch on the ways we experience grace at this meal. The first way is on kind of a, a, on a personal level. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the Lord, the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now listen, Paul is writing this about a specific incident that's happening in this church. This is so important to note. Paul says... In an unworthy manner, he does not say an unworthy person. He's not concerned about whether or not the, the person reading this in Corinth deserves to be at the table, because none of us do. It's a question of whether you're approaching the table with an unrepentant heart or not. 
Now, I, I want those of you who feel like you're not good enough to come to God. And I know there's some of us in this room. You, your thing is that you feel like you're not good enough to come to God. I want you to pay attention. I, I've never thought I would tell you to pay attention to a commentary, but I'm about to read you a quote from a commentary. And I want this to soak in more than anything else. Paul's warning was not to those who were leading unworthy lives and long for forgiveness. His warning was not to those who were leading unworthy lives but longed for forgiveness. His warning was to those who were making a mockery of that which should have been the most sacred and solemn and celebrated by their behavior at the meal. If one is afflicted by sin, the supper is comfort. If one is comfortable with sin, the supper is affliction. So understand Paul's warning. It's not for those of you who are like, I've screwed up and I want to come to God, but I'm not good enough. Come to the table. But if you think I should be at the table because I deserve to be there, you better be careful. That's the warning. Paul is calling the Corinthian Christians to examine themselves. Listen, He's not telling them to examine themselves to find reasons why they're unworthy. He's telling them to examine themselves to find evidence that God's grace is at work. If, if when you examine yourself, you have even a shred of repentance, come to this table. If when you examine yourself, you see sin, but you say, I, I wish it wasn't there, come to this table. The Apostle Paul who wrote these words also said, the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the things I know I should do, I don't do. So you come to the table. When in doubt, lean into grace. Lean into grace. We don't examine ourselves for perfection, but we examine ourselves to recognize our need of Jesus' perfection on our behalf. Get your eyes off of you. This meal is not about you. It's about Jesus and you participating with him in this world. The only time Christians should refrain from the table is when we find that we don't care about our relationship to God and we don't care about our relationship to others. That's when you need to say, maybe, maybe I, I need to let it pass this week. And I need to examine that and come with repentance. But I would even argue even that act, if you find repentance in that moment, come to the table. The Lord's Supper is God's provision of his grace for sinners. So we celebrate it. We enjoy it. We feed on Christ. See, the Lord's Supper, I think what it does is it brings holiness and celebration together perfectly. We, we feel the holiness of the moment at this table because we remember the significance of what happened. Your sin and my sin, Jesus paid by his blood and his body to redeem us from that. But we feel celebration because he did do that. And he was raised from the dead and death no longer has the final say and we look for his return. So that's the personal aspect of how we experience grace. There's also communal aspect, verse 29. We look around and we discern the body. Listen to these words. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this body that he's talking about here, it's a little confusing because he's talking about the body and the blood of the Lord as a meal. But here when he says discern the body, he's talking about the church. Jesus' body is broken for believers so that we can live 
together so that we can be whole. And so division within the body of Christ, division within the church is a lie about the gospel, right? It's to lie about what God has done. And so if it ever becomes evident that our community is encouraging any kind of division, then we have to repent. We have to repent together. The grace of God needs to, to permeate our relationships, to put us around people who are not like us. And I know every week I have a view of this little room that many of you don't have, like right now, and I look out and I think, if it were just the world standards, this room would not be this room. That's just not how it works in our world. We've got different ages, different backgrounds, different nationalities, all those things, but yet the body and the blood of Jesus as celebrated in this meal brings us together and we are, uh, I think it was St. Augustine said, it's like when a loaf of bread comes from all the different heads of wheat in the field into one thing. Or the grapes that make up the wine. They come from all over the vineyard, and yet they make up one cup. And so as Christians, in a Christian community, we are called to actively look for and to dismantle disunity, whether it's person to person or more communal in the body as a whole. Verse 34, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. He literally means wait for one another. But I think there's a principle there as well. Care about one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Don't come here and do that foolish thing. It's not wrong to eat, but do that at home. We're doing something else here. That's what he's saying. Wait for one another means putting one another's needs before our own. Because why? Christ put our needs before his own. To the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a book by Don Carson called Love in Hard Places, and he says this. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And so as we get there in the book of Acts, we're going to see a really cool picture of this in Acts chapter 16 which if you want to read ahead, of course you can. It's the Bible. <laughs> but we're going to see a picture of this in Acts 16 where we are going to encounter the church that's meeting at Lydia's house. And it, it's going to give you this picture. Now, there, there's so much more to say about the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, there's books and books and books written about it. But what I hope you'll walk away with just for today, and maybe we'll do something else another time where we talk about a different aspect. What I hope you'll walk away with today, and especially in a little bit as we partake of the meal, is just the sheer beauty of what's happening in this room. Don't take it for granted. I know it's easy because we do it every week. But don't take it for granted what's happening in this room. The Lord's Supper not only reveals and, and, and shows us and reminds us of the, the vertical aspect of what it means to be in union with God through Jesus and filled by his Holy Spirit, it also draws us into horizontal uh, unity with one another. I, I like to talk about how at the fall, when sin entered the world, three relationships are broken. The relationship between us and God, a relationship between even us and nature, and us and one another. And when Christ 
dies and resurrects and ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, all three of those are brought back into unity, looking forward to the ultimate day of unity and his kingdom. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of all of that. It, it draws us into these implications for what it means to put others' needs first and to participate with Christ in this world as he brings his kingdom to bear on it through us and as he makes all things new. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for even just the symbol of this gathering, that even this room, this gathering of people is a symbol of your kingdom and how people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come together and will feast. And so we thank you that we are about to feast at your table. We thank you that you're telling us, come to the table. That your posture towards us isn't get yourself right before you come to my table, but it's come to my table because I've made a way. So Father, I pray in this room right now, if there's those of us who, who don't yet know and love you, that this would be the moment we trust in you and then come to the table for the first time as someone who believes in you. And we ask for those of us who've come to this table a million times in our life, that it would be new again, that this table would be a meaningful moment, even as we see our babies come back into this room and participate in this little moment in the way that they are, in the way that they can as children. Father, as parents, on this day in particular, as fathers, would you help us to disciple our children into knowing the grace of Jesus, our Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask for your empowerment as we go out from here and as we take this meal together in just a little bit. And we pray all this to the glory of you, our Father God in heaven. Amen.